0: This Dharma talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Thanks for coming out today to join the Dharma Assembly. My name is Kokyo coming from Santa Cruz uh, seems to have become a kind of tradition for me to come visit Austin Zen Center the past number of years and it's always a joy to come here and practice with you all and to just um, appreciate this wonderful Zen center uh, I hope you can appreciate how fortunate you are to have such a place in Austin like this it's kind of a rare thing in the world to have an ongoing community with regular Zen practice and that just keeps going uh, day after day and year after year and uh to have a teacher like Reverend Mako, who uh, keeps it going day after day and year after year. Sometimes when when you step into a Zen center, it seems like well, it's just going, it's just kind of taking care of itself. But um, uh, it takes a lot of energy um, behind the scenes to keep it going. And uh, and. It's rare to find someone like Maka who, who spent her whole adult life practicing Zen and, and just given her life to Zen practice and uh, stayed in the monastery um, longer than almost anybody ever. <laughs> I think, I don't know, I think she might hold the, the world record for Asahara. No? Galen did 12 years where you were about 10 or <laughs> almost the world record <laughs> people don't stay at Tassajara that long and steep in the practice there so um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fortunate thing to rejoice in and, and be grateful for such a community and this weekend we're in a Denko-e-sashin, which is a, a time to sit a lot of zazen. Sashin means to gather the mind together in one suchness. And Denko-e is a transmission of light assembly. So you've all um, stepped into the... Transmission of light. It's beaming through the windows and in through the windows and out through the windows and filling the room and all of space. This invisible light. And uh, Denkhoei Sashin is named after this old record of Zen stories called the Denko Roku Transmission of Light Record, written by Keizan Zenji, one of the co-founders of Soto Zen in Japan in the 1300s. I think he started giving these talks in the year 1300. And it's the stories, the awakening stories of all the ancestors of our particular lineage, from Shakyamuni Buddha up to Keizan's teacher's teacher through India, China, and Japan. And there are our ancestors. Keizan, as the co founder, along with Dogen of Soto Zen, is less known in America less um, celebrated he's a very important uh, teacher few generations after Dogen and uh, this is his kind of main teaching and Kezon was interesting because he, he was this very small community of Soto Zen practice in his time, founded by Dogen, it was still a very small thing. I think just a few temples around Japan. Maybe a little bit like the time of Zen coming to America. Like, it's not so widespread um, after 50 or 60 years. And uh, Keizan was one who um, tried to make it more accessible to everyone. And I think it's interesting that the way he helped make it accessible is he uh, he started Zen practice like at, I think he was ordained as a priest at age eight or thirteen or really young, and um, and went off to practice with many teachers as was the tradition. And he practiced with some some Rinzai Zen teachers who also uh, incorporated elements of what we might call. Vajrayana Buddhism in in Japan it's the Shingon school is the is the Shingon means mantra so the Mantrayana of Japan and uh, so kind of like a lot of ritual practice and a lot of symbolic uh, ritual expression so so Kazan practiced with some of those teachers and and Dogen who was very had a very kind of purest streak of like let's just sit Zazen that's all we need but as far as we know Dogen maybe didn't even do any ceremonies, or very few uh, but Kezan's like let's, let's bring in some of this some of this, um, this ritual that's uh, beautiful and symbolic and expressive uh, to um, touch and meet the Buddha way so the part that I think is kind of funny is that to popularize and make accessible um, Zen practice in Japan was done by bringing in all this kind of esoteric ritual. <laughs> I think. Doesn't that make it more inaccessible? But I think in Japan at that time, Buddhism was like a, um, a tradition of, of, uh, of ritual. So if you just sat Zazen, it's like people couldn't really understand that. It's maybe almost like the opposite, maybe in America now. <laughs> people can relate to, to sitting meditation, but the ritual thing is, is a little bit harder to open to sometimes. It's, a, it's less in our culture. And another important aspect of Kazan's uh, teaching was that he had a lot of women students. And uh, Dōgen also had had women priests and students, Um, but the first uh, (laughs) dharma transmission to a woman in Japanese Sōto Zen was a student of Keizan. Her name is uh, Ekyū, Kinyō Ekyū. So sometimes we chant the lineage of all the women ancestors, five names on that list are disciples of Keizan. E, Ekyu is the first to kind of receive transmission and hold the lineage in Japan. And uh, Eikan was Keizan's mother who uh, later in her life was ordained as a priest and practiced with Keizan and became an abbess at um, one of the several um, women's temples that Keizan helped set up. And uh, Mokufu Sonin was um, one of the major donors of um, some of Keizan's temples, and she later also was ordained as a priest and um, received transmission from Keizan and was, became an abbess at one of the um, women's temples. And uh, Mokufu Sonin's mother... Shouzen, these are all names that we chant regularly here. Uh, she was a, um, a lay disciple of Keizan. And Myosho Enkan was actually Keizan's cousin. And she also became an abbess at one of the uh, uh, women's temples. So uh, early on in Zen in Japan, um, Keizan's started passing the lineage to, to all these women who then kept it going through the centuries. This Transmission of Light Record has 53 chapters, got each one on one of the ancestors of the lineage. So this weekend we're looking at some of the Indian ancestors going way back to the 4th century in India. And uh, today... We can hear the story of Vasubandhu, one of our Indian ancestors who is actually, most of these Indian names we don't know much about, whether they even existed or not, (laughs) but um, Vasubandhu is a really important teacher in India, part of our our lineage today, Uh, kind of co-founder of what we call the Yogacara school of Mahayana Buddhism. Yogachara means like yogic practice, a practice of union. Yoga, you yeah, know, means union, and uh, so we can hear that as a it's a meditation-oriented school, as opposed to just merely scholastic. And we can also hear the the union practice school as like the union of all dualities, or the union of subject and object school. Sometimes also called the mind only tradition. Vasubandhu and his half brother Asanga were the founders of that school in the fourth century of India. And uh, here's the story, the Zen story of Vasubandhu uh, meeting his Zen teacher. He also practiced with various teachers, but There's this teacher, Jayata, whose name we chant in the lineage. And uh, we might understand it as, you know, he received various kinds of Abhidharma teachings from different teachers and Yogacara teachings from his brother, Asanga. Uh, But he received this Zen lineage from Jayata. Jayata Dayosho. So... uh, Kazan recounts the story. The 21st ancestor in India was Venerable Vasubandhu. One time the 20th ancestor, Jayata, said to him, I do not seek the way, yet I'm not confused. I do not venerate the Buddhas, yet I do not disregard the Buddhas. I do not sit meditation for long, long periods of time, yet I'm not lazy. I do not restrict myself to just one meal a day, yet I don't just eat indiscriminately. I do not, I am not satisfied, yet I'm not greedy. When the mind seeks nothing, This is called the way. And when Vasubandhu heard this, he aroused undefiled awareness or knowing. Jnana. It's kind of like Vasubandhu's awakening to the light. Then, as all these chapters of this record uh, do, Kazan tells some of the story, the old stories of the life of Vasubandhu. So we kind of get to know these ancestors. And uh, he tells this story that I'll, I'll read you here. But before I do, there's a, there's a kind of alternate story of the birth of Vasubandhu that's not told here by Kazan. These stories are so old. We're talking about the 4th century in India, right? But um, but because Vasubandhu is an important teacher, the various things got recorded about him. So this alternate story that's not in the text here, I think is a kind of beautiful one. That Vasubandhu's uh, mother was named Prasana Shila. We don't really have the Sanskrit for her name in, in this text, but in, maybe... Hopefully, it's the same person. Uh-huh. This mother um, was a Buddhist nun, uh, bhikshuni, which Buddhism was thriving in India at this time. And right, it, it had Buddha lived in about five hundred BC, so many centuries of Buddhism spreading throughout India, and um, it was a period of uh, a lot of. A lot of more and more complex teachings were, were growing in, in India. Abhidharma teachings about um, the structure of mind were popular at this time. But this devoted uh, Buddhist nun uh, felt like actually the teachings are, um, are getting kind of convoluted, she felt like. She felt like we need we need people to really um, deeply investigate the mind and how things are and um, clarify these teachings of abhidharma and uh, and um, kind of revive the um, clarity of Buddha Dharma in India. She felt that very strongly, and she was a Buddhist nun, so she was totally devoted to the tradition and she contemplated how could she best um, help this to happen. And her conclusion was, maybe she had a vision or something, her conclusion was, um, I'm going to form this strong intention to um, have some babies that will grow up to revive the Buddhist tradition. She might have said, well, why don't I just do it myself? But she felt like, um, <laughs> maybe at this time in India, um, she, she felt like maybe people wouldn't listen to a woman as much. Um, I think there were cultural issues like that. Um, and she was very flexible. So anyway, she had this vision <laughs> of like, why don't I have some sons <laughs> and that will... Um, if I make this vow, in a way I'm supporting them by my deep intention. If I'm if I, um, able to do this, I'm going, and then I can raise them in this way that they can start from very young, younger than I started, and, uh, and maybe really um, do some good for Buddha Dharma in India. So um, at that time, the, the, the Buddha's nuns had a vow of celibacy, so they couldn't have kids. So she disrobed. She, she returned to lay life as part of her vow to um, restore Buddhist teaching so she could have these kids. That's an interesting story. <laughs> um, a kind of unusual story. And she did this, apparently. And uh, with two different fathers... Um, she herself was of Brahmin birth, and um, but she had one um, child, Asanga, with a Kshatriya caste father, and then, and then a year later had the child Vasubandhu with a Brahmin father. <clears throat> and uh, we can imagine that her whole purpose of doing this was to was to have these kids so she probably put a lot of intention and aspiration while they were in her womb into, um, into uh, the, the wish for them to really open to, to complete wisdom and, um, and probably raise them very young probably started teaching them Abhidharma as soon as they were born <laughs> and uh, we don't know the details but there's the, there's the two half-brothers. They had the same mother but different fathers, Asanga and Vasubandhu. Vasubandhu a year younger. <clears throat> and Vasubandhu uh, then studied with um, the various, teachers of various Indian schools of Buddhism. The the vaibhashika school is kind of an Abhidharma tradition. And then he later, as he studied it more, he, he started opening to teachers of the Sautrantika school in India and, um, that had a slightly different take on Abhidharma. And, and then Vasubandhu wrote the Abhidharma Kosha, which is this huge compendium of... Sometimes we'd say Abhidharma is like Buddhist psychology. It's like this very, very detailed study of how not just how the mind works, but how the world works, how karma works, how awakening works. It's kind of structuring all the Buddha's sutras into this very kind of um, structured-by-topic, methodical um, layout of the entire path. And the Abhidharma Koshas, we have it in English, it's a thousand pages or something, it's huge, Volume and it takes the form of this debate between these Sautrantika and Vaibhashika schools. Vasubandhu is writing the whole thing, but he, he presents it a lot of the difficult points of doctrine. He kind of brings up both sides and sort of has a debate with himself because he, he practiced with teachers of both those schools. And that Abhidharmakosha of Vasubandhu is still like the main source for like the kind of overview of Buddhism. All through the Tibetan world of Buddhism, but also all through China, Korea, and Japan, East Asian Buddhism, it's all of Mahayana Buddhism takes this as their kind of like. If you want, a, if you want a kind of overview of the whole Buddhist, especially early Buddhist tradition, thorough overview, this is a great book, and um, and I heard that Suzuki Roshi near the end of his life, people asked him. Um, after you're gone, um, what should we continue to study? Uh, Suzuki Roshi wasn't even around that long. and He mostly taught Zen stories. But I heard that he said, if you if you uh, really want to study deeply Buddhism, you should study this Abhidharma Kosha of Vasubandhu. So, uh, you can do that if you have some time on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> and then... It's, it's considered a pre-Mahayana teachings Abhidharma Kosha, and um, apparently Vasubandhu was a little bit like he heard the Mahayana was happening. This radical new kinds of teachings about non-duality and emptiness were was happening in India, but Vasubandhu was a little bit like, nah, I don't know. They're like they're a little too weird. There's Mahayana people. He was a little bit like biased against them, but. Um, his brother, his half-brother, Asanga, was one of his main exponents of the uh, uh, Mahayana teachings. So eventually he started hanging out with his brother, and his bro- brother apparently converted Vasubandhu to the Mahayana, and especially this Yogachara tradition. So um, Vasubandhu sort of changed his tune a little bit. He still had a sort of Abhidharma style, But his understanding actually shifted. And he wrote like the 30 verses on mind-only and and a lot of other mind-only kind of teachings. And it shifted so much that sometimes people, um, some modern scholars say, actually, we think that there were two Vasubandhus, one who wrote the Abhidharma Kosha and one who has this totally different style of mind-only teachings. uh, That there were two, but... But my understanding is that the latest scholarship, it rejects that idea. And so when we compare the kind of language of these different texts, we, it looks so similar. Actually, we think it really was. like the tradition says that one Vasubandhu who kind of completely presented one kind of tradition and then kind of switched over and presented another tradition that kind of refutes the first one. I like that story because it just shows how flexible he is. He can be totally devoted to one way, feel like this is the truth, and then have a, have a deeper awakening, deeper understanding, and say, maybe I didn't completely understand it. Let's go with this new version, instead of like, well, to save face, I have to stay committed to the older version. It's like, no, my understanding is different. Let's go with my actual direct experience. That's uh, how I imagined Vasubandhu's mind. So Kazan's story of Vasubandhu's life is like this. He Vasubandhu was from Rajagriha, which was in in it still is in northern India where um, Vulture Peak is in Rajagriha and um, the bamboo grove where the Buddha practiced. It was one of the main places that the Buddha hung out in India was Rajagriha, so it it looked like it was still a um, a Buddhist practice place uh, 800 years after the Buddha. And I've been to Rajagriha. It's still a Buddhist practice place. Many people visit, climb up the steep um, sides of Vulture Peak to um, sit at the top vulture peak where the Buddha uh, long ago held up a flower and Mahakashapa smiled and thus the Zen transmission of light began on vulture peak. So uh, Vasubandhu lived there and his family name was Vaishakra. His father's name was Canopy of Light and his mother's name was Foremost of Adornments. I guess we don't have the Sanskrit names. The family was wealthy, but there were no children. The parents sought descendants by praying at the stupa of the Buddha. One night, the mother had a dream of drinking two jewels, one bright and one dark, and she became pregnant. Seven days later, an arhat, uh, enlightened practitioner in Griha, uh, named Assembly of the Wise, appeared at their house. Canopy of Light, the father, paid reverence to this arhat, and the arhat received the bows while remaining seated. Foremost of adornments, his wife, appeared and paid reverence. And at that point, this arhat stood up saying, I bow to the great being who is the Dharma body. And um, Canopy of Light, her husband, didn't understand the reason for this. And he took a precious jewel in order to test this arhat teacher. He gave him the jewel, and the arhat received this jewel without any display of humility or thanks. He just like, oh, okay, just put the jewel in his pocket. And um, Canopy of Light, the husband, could not tolerate this um, lack of gratitude. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm the master of this house and you didn't pay any attention to my reverence. What virtue does my wife have that you stand up to receive her respect? kind of jealous and the arhat said receiving your veneration and accepting your jewel was only to bring you merit and blessings and there is a kind of tradition in buddhism of, um, to encourage giving with with no strings attached just pure giving with no thought of like they They'll thank me a lot if I give this. There's a tradition of just receiving offerings and not saying thank you, actually, in ancient Buddhism. So, um, because then the donor, in a way, receives more merit because it's just a pure gift with nothing in return, no even thanks in return. So I think that's what this arhat is saying. I re- I did receive your bows and your jewel, um, and I didn't I didn't thank you because I wanted you to receive more more blessings and merit. And, uh, but your wife bears a wise son in her womb. His birth will be a lamp to the world and a son of wisdom. That's why I stood up. Not, not just because I value females more than males. And he continued, uh, Your wife will bear two sons. One will be named Vasubandhu, and he's the one that I venerate in her womb. The other will be named Suni, which means magpie. Like the little bird. Magpie. Long ago, the Arhat says, when the Tathagata, the Buddha, was practicing the way in the Himalaya mountains, a magpie built a nest on top of his head. The Buddha was... Sat so still for six years without moving, even to do kinhin, uh, that that the, that a magpie had plenty of time to gather some twigs and build a nice nest in this warm spot on the top of the Buddha's head, and the Buddha didn't even notice because he was in deep samadhi. But therefore, the magpie, in that way, made this kind of karmic connection with the Buddha by building a nest on his head. And uh, when the Buddha realized awakening, the magpie was then reborn as a king of the city of Nadi as the consequence of his act of building the nest there. say Was that a good thing, to build a nest in the Buddha? But I see it just like, any karma connection with the Buddha is... Um, very good. <laughs> Sometimes there's like, um, we can make aspirations. I like to make these aspirations. May all beings, whoever, who I have a good or bad connection with, may they all um, be happy and realize complete awakening. So even if, if somebody has a connection with me by really having aversion to me, they made a, I, I, I want that connection to lead to their complete awakening. If someone builds a nest on top of my head, <laughs> I want them to be reborn in a um, in a Dharma community and practiced the way. If some insect inadvertently um, comes to its demise um, under my foot, I um, I pray that that um, such a creature in its next life will will open to the Dharma through this connection with a practitioner's foot. The Buddha, the Arhat goes on telling this story, the Buddha predicted during the second 500 years of the Dharma, you, the, um, the magpie, I think he's talking about here, will be born in the Vaishaka family in Rajagriha as the twin brother of a holy person. This prediction is now coming true, the Arhat said. A month later, the two sons were born as twins. One uh, Vasubandhu and one the, um, the current incarnation of the magpie from Buddha's head. When Venerable Vasubandhu turned 15, he paid... Reverence to the Arhat luminous salvation and left home with that Arhat that practitioner the Bodhisattva named Vipaka gave him the precepts which is interesting because usually leaving home means you receive the precepts so it sounds like in this case maybe there were like the um, home leaving precepts he received from this Arhat but then Bodhisattva precepts from another teacher named Vipaka. The 20th ancestor Venerable Jayata was traveling about teaching and went to Rajgriha, spreading the teaching of suddenness, which is a, a reference here, I think, to, um, to what we now call the Zen tradition. Zen is the tradition of suddenness. Zen is instantly like this. Instantly, Zen is completely fulfilled right now. Did you notice how the light is filling the room now? Suddenness, actually, um, I think, is a little bit too slow. (laughs) I think Zen is really more about... um, Already, thus that 's what I think we really mean by sudden or the teaching of immediacy maybe is a is a nice way to talk about the the sudden school of Zen sudden awakening instead of happening um, after a long time it's sudden something suddenly happens it 's more like awakening is immediately present uh, it 's not something that that uh, takes a gradual, long time. A practice can be a, a gradual, long process, but, uh, but the immediacy of the light is always here from the beginning. So this teacher, Jayata, was one of those people. <laughs> Supposedly, in India, there were such people. Uh, there was spreading the teaching of immediacy in Rajagriha. And there was a group of students there in town who valued only debate. I think meaning like arguing about all the, um, all the, the differences between Vaipashaka and Sartrakthaka schools and these kind of things that the Abhidharma kosha is kind of about debate. Um, a lot like scholasticism and and very complicated if you look at this Abhidharma Kosha oh man (laughs) they like they debate not like they all like everyone in Buddhism agrees on the basic points they debate like these really like um, minor points because they want to like cover the details they want to be really clear it's beautiful actually debate but if you get so into debate. That you forget the teaching of immediacy then um then uh, we lose the point, and I think maybe that's always happening that's maybe why Vasi Bandhi's mom made this vow is that we need people to we need some people to uh revive the experiential immediacy of Buddha Dharma, but still um we 're in this culture of debate and intricacy of detail. So if they just throw that part out, no one will even, um, people will just think it's some sort of joke. So, they have, so that was the art of what Vasubandhu later did, I think, was, was teach this immediacy and non-duality, but using the kind of language of the maps of mind and Abhidharma. So, this group of students um, that valued only debate considered Vasubandhu to be their leader. Here it says, Vasubandhu means total practice or universal practice. I don't know if that's what it really means, but he always, Vasubandhu, was a very strict practitioner. He always ate just one meal a day at the proper time and he never lay down to rest. He didn't, he didn't lie down to sleep. He slept sitting up. Day and night, six times a day, he paid reverence to the Buddha, did ceremonies of bowing and offerings to the Buddhas. He was pure and desireless and much trusted by the group. But Venerable Jayata, teaching immediacy, wanted to liberate him. (laughs) The pure Vasubandhu, he felt like, was um, was like a little bit stuck. He felt like he wanted to save him. So he asked the group of Vasubandhu's disciples, this ascetic Vasubandhu cultivates purity very well, but can he Tain the Buddha way? The group replied Our teacher is so diligent, why can't he? And Jayata answered, Your teacher is actually far from the way. Even if he practices asceticism for countless eons, these are just the roots of vanity and illusion. Whew Gutsy <laughs> to tell is how this whole Sangha in um, Radhi kind of insult their teacher like this. The group asked asked Jayata, oh, what virtuous practices do y- have you accumulated that enable you to slander our teacher? Huh? <laughs> and Jayata said, the story that we heard, I do not seek the way nor am I confused. I do not venerate the Buddhas, yet I don't disregard the Buddhas. I don't sit meditation for long periods of time, yet I'm not lazy either. I don't restrict myself to just one meal a day, but I don't just eat indiscriminately. I am not satisfied, but I'm not greedy. When the mind seeks nothing, this is called the way. And so we don't know what the disciples all would probably like. Yeah, whatever. But Vasubandhu, their teacher, was very open. And when he heard this, he aroused undefiled knowing, awareness, wisdom. Vasubandhu was overjoyed and praised Jayata. Then Jayata spoke to the group again, saying, Do you understand what I'm saying? The reason I said what I did is because your teacher's way seeking mind was too extreme. If you pluck a string on an instrument too hard, it snaps. Therefore, in order to get Vasubandhu to abide in the realm of tranquility and happiness, or um, ease and joy, and enter the wisdom of all the Buddhas, I did not praise his ascetic practices. So, uh, this this um, analogy of, of plucking a string on an instrument I think refers to the classic story of one of the Buddha's students who was. Um, Practicing um, too intently, a monk named Sona in the old sutras, and uh, as I recall, it's like he was he was doing walking meditation on like rough stones for so long that his feet started bleeding, something like this, and and, uh, and the Buddha, and then then this monk Sona said, this practice is too hard maybe I should just um, return to my former lay life and um, give up this meditation business and just um, try to have a happy life. And the Buddha could kind of read his mind and think, actually, he's a great practitioner, but he's just—he's about to give it all up to go to the other extreme because he's suffering so much in this extreme. And the Buddha taught this parable of the lute, where if, you, if you're playing a guitar or a lute and, you, and the strings are tuned too tightly, they'll snap. But if they're tuned too loosely, they won't make any music either. So it's like, to tune the string just right, so it's not too tight or not too loose. It's called the middle way. And uh, then beautiful music comes from the middle way. It's a great thing to keep in mind, I think, for our practice and um, we might feel like, uh, well, I don't know, these people practicing these ascetic practices and stuff, we might not relate to that, but um, I think this, the principle here, I think, is something we can all relate to. That uh, if we try too hard to um, improve ourselves through Zen practice, um, it becomes tiring, and we kind of burn out, and, uh, and we're not content. That's kind of one extreme. And that's kind of what these ascetic practices look like. They're not like um, practicing really diligently to benefit beings directly. They're more like just um, self disciplining practices to really um, train one's own body and mind to um, realize the way but it can be if it's overdone then um, it becomes tiresome and we maybe want to give up and it also maybe becomes a little too self-absorbed and then the other extreme is like if too loose is like well since the lights already filling the room um, (laughs) there's nothing really we have to do here so let's go home (laughs) And then we don't, we're, we, um, we're not really verifying the way for ourselves, we're verifying the light, verifying what's always present. So zazen is a beautiful practice of the middle way, where we're not trying to use zazen to improve our individual self, and we're also staying on the cushion and sitting very still. During this period of zazen, just before this, it was amazing sitting in the seat to look out at the room. people, All of you sitting so still. It's a beautiful sight to see a lot of people sitting so still together. And um, nobody's got up and left in the middle. And uh, we don't know what you, we were thinking, but um, just to <laughs> settle and <laughs> stay on your seat um, is itself a way that to settle the mind. We know this as Zen practitioners. That's our diligence to, without trying to improve ourselves or even do anything in particular, necessarily, just by being in our body and mind in the present, uh, everything starts to settle and the the light that's already filling the room um, starts to become more apparent It's like a middle way practice so I think having a regular Zazen practice is, is so helpful um, you could say is that like aesthetic practice to just sit every day No I don't think that's going too far <laughs> maybe we can do that have you know really commit to like I think that's a good I think that's a good commitment for any Zen practitioner who's you might be here for the first time today, I, I don't know, and you're just exploring it, but I think if you really want to try out Zen practice and make it, a, make it part of your life, I think, like, is it too much to say every day? <laughs> Half an hour every day? Sometimes with the Sangha, but if you don't live nearby, sitting at home? I think that regularity is, um, is really... Uh, goes a long way over a long time, even though this is the lineage of immediacy the um, the the verification can deepen very gradually over time by our continued sitting regular sitting if we take a break for a few weeks months or years then um, we forget all about the light and it's nice sometimes like like some of you are, coming to sit sashin for the weekend and sit all day for a few days. That's, I think, a sweet thing to do um, once in a while. Even there, I would say, there's there's plenty of sashins here at Austin Zen Center, right? But maybe you don't do all of them, but maybe once a year. At least a one-day sitting where you sit through the whole day. If you've never tried, and again, if you want to really make Zen practice a a kind of... um, uh, a somewhat central part of your life I think uh, that's a nice one too if you have a regular daily practice of Zazen 30 or 40 minutes set a timer so you don't get up early and um, luckily these days everyone has a timer in their pocket all, their t- all the time with iPhone apps and um, and um, it's nice to do a whole day of sitting, or a session, even once a year, to kind of like, it's different than sitting just one period a day. So, um, there's a practice. Uh, and the middle way will be different for each person. If you're just new to practice, sitting every day might seem like, whoa, that's an intense middle way. If you've been practicing for many years, it might be like, Actually, that's easy. But sitting every sasheen at Austin Zen Center—that's kind of a stretch. That might be my middle way for some people. Right? Um, I think it really does depend. There's not a fixed middle way. For for Shakyamuni Buddha in his very first teaching, uh, setting in motion the wheel of Dharma, he said um, he taught the middle way. He said. Uh, Monks, for those who have gone forth from the worldly life, there uh, are these two extremes to avoid. What are these two extremes? Uh, Devotion to pursuing sense pleasure, which is degrading, common, the way of ordinary people, unworthy and unprofitable. That's one extreme. And devotion to self-mortification, painful uh, ascetic practices, is painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. Avoiding both these extremes, the the Tathagata, the Buddha, has realized the middle way, which gives vision, knowledge, and leads to peace, to insight, to awakening, to freedom. And what is that middle way, the Buddha says? It's simply the Noble Eightfold Path, namely... Right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So um, that was the Buddha's first teaching, uh, kind of, kind of, I think mirroring Vasubandhu's um, or Vasubandhu's teachers' teaching. I do not seek the way, and I'm not confused. I don't. Um, venerate the Buddhas but I don't disregard the Buddhas it's free from these um, from all extremes the middle is um, we can't even find, we can't see the middle it's um, imperceptible but we can kind of see the extremes (laughs) we know when we get into we're striving too hard or we're getting too lazy partly I think we know it We know the extremes by um, the fact that they're not so pleasant. They're kind of painful, the extremes. We might even go so far as to say, if ever we are having a really hard time, we're having a really uncomfortable, painful experience, we might even say, at that time, we're falling into one extreme or the other. It's an interesting contemplation. It might not sound like, you know, laziness or ascetic practice, but um, we might be having a really hard time because we have a too high a standard for ourselves, and we're becoming self-judgmental. We're, we're we're judging ourselves too strongly. We're not doing good enough. That's a little bit like the ascetic side, right? And a kind of emotional um, aspect of the of the striving too hard. And we're not happy because we're not meeting our own expectations. But we set up our own expectations. So that, there's a, we're falling off to one extreme. And then we say, I'm too hard on myself. Let's take it easy. And like, oh, actually it's been like several years since I ever sat Zazen now. <laughs> forget all about those precepts and, and so on, right? Then, then we're like, oh, now my life's not going so well either. Now it's painful in this other way, right? So I think it, we really do... Uh, That's an example of how I think all of us experience the pain from either side. And the pain from leaning off to one side just helps bring us back to the center. And then we often then go too far the other way, and then that becomes painful. So that's how we know the extremes is they're unpleasant. And the middle is harder to perceive because um, it's just okay. Maybe sometimes we just are okay, things are just going fine, and we're actually just walking the middle way, but we don't appreciate it because it's just, we don't appreciate just the the normality of just being okay. What an amazing gift to actually be okay. We only notice it when we're not okay. So, this is all things to keep in mind. I, um, when I think of this story, I, I think of times in my own practice when I've kind of tried out some of these ascetic practices. You know, just doing it for so long, um, especially as a young man, it, like uh, there was that aspiration, if I just try harder, I'll um, make more progress. So there was a phase, especially when I was living at No Abode Hermitage. Um, or we could practice more intently, and we just would have a week-long sasheen every month. For and there were a few years, and we were just like a couple people living there, doing <coughs> doing this practice. Sometimes it was just me, and uh, but there were over three years where I took up those precepts of like um, not eating afternoon. This is eating eating one meal a day. Some people practice that but, but um, the precept is you can you can eat um, 57 meals before noon between sunrise and noon or at least breakfast and lunch <laughs> um, but even in in you know, monastic uh, um, traditional monastic orders of Buddhism you don't eat between between noon and sunrise the next day so um, I wanted to try out some of those things so, for a few years, you know. I, and sometimes it was it was um, it was awkward because it would be like I think I would say like one o'clock, and but um, you know include daylight savings and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but sometimes it would be like other people around me didn't have this vow, so it'd be like, yeah, we should eat lunch soon, and it's like you know five to one or something. We better eat lunch soon. (laughs) Or it's going to be breakfast tomorrow, right? It was a little like, it caused some tension. (laughs) And and I took up that practice again, a kind of traditional monastic practice. They still follow these things in Thailand and so on. Of not using money, not receiving or handling money at all for over three years. And... um, Again, I learned a lot by these practices. It was a great one to see how you really can do that it 's okay like i didn't i didn 't go hungry ever. Um, food is plentiful we would this is in America, but we would do like alms collecting with our wooke bowls and um, Zen style of called Takuhatsu or big bamboo hats that that kind of cover your face so you 're sort of anonymous and um, and uh, you have straw sandals, and there's a special way you can... Uh, I learned in Japan the, uh, the form for this ritual practice, but we supported ourselves for a few years with this, this kind of um, alms collecting in Mill Valley, California. And uh, also receiving um, leftovers from Green Gold's Farm down the road on their way to the compost bucket after they'd been... Reheated several times and I couldn't serve them anymore. Like, we'll take them <laughs> <laughs> So um, it was a great practice time for me, but but um, uh, like I say, I, I learned a lot, but um, but uh, These practices are very limiting they limit your life It was interesting not to be to be able to not Use money for three years meant my life became very very simple. I think that's part of the reason for these practices. I was just there. I, I never went to a movie or anything. And uh, it was nice but it was also limited. I, I only had this small circle of, of activity. Um, so I think uh, if things get too extreme that um, our, our ways of being with people and benefiting people become um, harder. Then, and then, in a way, I think to, to go to, to practice really diligently, uh, take on some harder practices, then when we let them go, it's easier to find the middle, I think, too. And uh, more like, if, if there's not um, food or money around sometime, it's, it's okay. I know that it's okay. I really kind of got to test that. But it's also okay to have, st- have them, too, <laughs> now. So, um, so uh, the middle way. Now, um, Kazan now comments on this story of Asubandu. Kazan says, This story contains the greatest secret for learning the way, for studying the way. Like, he really. Kei loves this story. And I remember when I first heard this story, I, um, I, um, I thought, yeah, so it's one of the one of all these strange Zen stories, it's one that's a little more straightforward actually. It's this kind of, not so hard to understand what the ancestors are saying. Uh, Kei san says, This story contains the greatest secret for studying the way. Why? If you think that you have to become a Buddha, Or attain the way, and that in order to attain the way, acquire the way, you have to abstain from food, live a life of purity, meditate for long periods, never lie down, bow to Buddha constantly, and recite the scriptures and accumulate all the merit and virtues. This is like making flowers rain down from the sky where there are no flowers. Or making holes in the ground where there are no holes. You might say, like, it's meddling with what's already complete. There's... Sometimes in Zen they say, it's like gouging out a wound in healthy flesh. It's like... it's Don't, like, make some... Trouble where things are okay. Even though, Kazan says, you spend eons and eons doing these things, you will not find liberation when there's nothing to want, nothing to hope for or crave. This is called the way. Thus, even wanting to know contentment or satisfaction is the root of greed. Even in enjoying sitting meditation for a long time, there's the fault of being obstructed by the body or attached to the body having to be in a certain posture. If you attempt to eat just once a day, you become obsessed with food. Also, if you try to honor the Buddha and too much and chant the scriptures all the time, these are like flowers in the eyes is the old Indian way of sky flowers are like um, cataracts or like a eye disease where you see floaters and you think that they are actually flowers falling in the sky so it's like a way of it's talking about illusion all these practices are meaningless or the, the root of empty delusion not at all your own original self your original nature so your original self is what's already always present, unchanging, always okay by its very nature. doesn't need any improvement and also doesn't need any um, distraction or avoiding of practice. It's just, um, it's happy to just sit here for as long as it's happy to sit here. If you think that sitting in meditation for a long time is the way, then sitting in the womb for nine months would be the way. It's very still without moving, right? We've all done that for nine months already without moving. And uh, so what would there be to seek later, after we've already done the nine months of sitting in our mother's womb? If abstaining from eating except once a day is the way, then does this mean that if you're sick and you cannot fix a definite time for eating, that you're not practicing the way? This is really a big laugh, kei says. <laughs> so, we have to remember here that he's talking to these Zen monks who are like spending their whole days um, sitting zazen, venerating buddhas, and reciting scriptures, <laughs> already doing that. So he says, I think we could hear him saying, you're doing these things, but if you think you're going to get something for yourself from doing all this stuff, then um, then um, don't, don't practice with that attitude. But of course, we have this schedule, we have these forms, we're going to keep doing it. But... Uh, let's do it with the spirit of we're already complete and then we can celebrate our original self that's already complete uh, by uh, by sitting for a long time (laughs) sometimes in sashin, right? and uh, and um Chanting long services where we chant all the names of all the ancestors. <laughs> so long. <laughs> we sit down for these sashin services because they're so long. <laughs> and we bow to Buddhas over and over again. And uh, um, it's beautiful. And we eat orioki. Can't we just go grab some food and, and, and um, you know, gobble it up? No, let's wait till we're served, and let's do some chanting first. And let's um, pick up our utensils thus, and let's pass the gomashio very nicely, bowing to each other. So inconvenient, this Zen (laughs) practice, but it's beautiful expression and and um, luckily we don't get anything from it except we get to eat that food eventually. (laughs) 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 So um, all these forms and practices and zazen itself, right? We can do as a celebration of our original self. Our original self is who we truly are, um, beginninglessly and endlessly. Not our personality, not our um, our body and feelings and and um, conceptions and habitual tendencies, and even our dualistic consciousness. All that stuff's not our original self, but uh, this. Ever present, uh, empty, luminous, reflexive awareness that includes everything and excludes nothing, that's expressing itself as ten thousand things as the expression changes moment to moment and day to day uh, 10,000 different experiences the experiencing of them is uh, originally unmoving and complete and free the experiencing cannot be judged as lazy or too attached. The experiences we might have various opinions about but the experiencing of all these experiences is just plain ordinary light. Do you have any questions or comments, anything you'd like to bring up? The story or anything else? Why, why isn't Asanga one of the uh, ancestors? Ah! I have had that same question before too because I love uh, the great Bodhisattva Asanga. I feel like he's very dear to my heart. I really appreciate his teachings. I'm, I'm sometimes more than Vasubandhu. <coughs> Vasubandhu is his student. Often did like commentaries on Asanga's teachings. And um, I don't know, but uh, it seems like like uh, um, in East Asia, China and Japan and so on, that Asanga, all his stuff was translated and is studied, but less popular for some reason than Vasubandhu. Vasubandhu is the kind of expounder of mind only and the Abhidharma teachings. Um, seem to like catch on more for some reason in, in China maybe because Vasubandhu wrote these short like one page uh, treatises like the 30 verses and the 20 verses and um, a treatise on the three natures, they're all like one or two pages and in the Chinese were like that's our style <laughs> whereas Sangha wrote like the the Yogacara Bhumi is like thousands of pages. I don't think he has any. I don't think I can't think of anything Asanga wrote less than a few hundred pages. So that might be part of it. And um, you know, the style is slightly different. But uh, I wonder because yeah he's he's well known in India. Um, why isn't he one of the ancestors like um, Nagarjuna and his disciple Aryadeva, Kanadeva is um are kind of like a, a pair of teacher and student that are those are both our ancestors. But uh, yeah, Sangha is not there and so maybe we can think of it as like this list of ancestors is pointing to this, this separate Zen transmission. And Jayata, who maybe nobody's really um knows of in in the Indian Buddhist studies, was kind of teaching this immediacy thing. So uh, maybe a lot of these ancestors practiced with different teachers, but their Zen transmission was a particular, um, a particular transmission outside the words and letters of the written complex teachings. Anything else? Yes. Okay, you have. Um, you're so. Um more well-versed understanding of the intellectual history, at the same time you seem to embody the light part of it, so like, kind of like both sides of a tradition, and so I wondered if you would just, I mean, how'd that happen? <laughs> well, I just, my, my, um, my fourth skanda is like these kind of karmic formations, these habitual tendencies that are like come from our, ska- our aggregates of body and mind are just conditioned from all kinds of past things. And um, so my particular personality, it's, you could say per- personality is, is kind of our fourth Skanda. And uh, I just like inherited this geekiness <laughs> from, um, I don't know, many conditions. Maybe, maybe genetically, from my parents, my, uh, my root teacher, Tenshin Roshi, um, it's a little bit geeky. <laughs> I would say. That's, that's, I think if it were not for him, I might not have discovered like Asanga and Vasubandhu. I don't know of any other Zen teacher that, that extensively teaches like a whole treatise of Asanga, <laughs> besides Tenshin Roshi. Um, some people, it drives them totally crazy because it's so geeky mm-hmm. and so um, not Zen. <laughs> it's so um, that style of those old Indian teachings. I think I really did get a lot of the that um, the kind of Indian geekiness part of Buddhism from my teacher. I think is a lot of it, and I I just have that kind of mind, and um, and the light I also got from my teacher. <laughs> yes, it's a wonderful expression in the middle. Ah, yeah. I hope that um, that uh, that I sometimes wonder about, it and I hope that I don't distract the Zen assembly with my um, over geekiness <laughs> sometimes. Uh, because um, yeah, it's just it's just my personal. I just love that stuff. the the um, the old the old Indian stuff but I also love the transmission of light. It's um you know, they are not contradictory but they're different styles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Will you be in, in Nepal? Is
1: that what are doing?
0: Yes, I'm going to Nepal this spring for like a few years or so and um Totally geek out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know Tibetan Tibetan Buddhism is um, is I think I'm partly drawn to it because they have this they have this mix of uh, immediacy the the, the um, especially the like um, the place I'm going to is a, is a Kagyu and Nyingma lineages of Tibetan Buddhism and it's a Monastery and university, so they have total Zen like teaching of immediacy called the Great Perfection and uh, Mahamudra, the Great Seal, and uh, which is all about non dual immediate suchness of awareness just as it is. But they also, especially in this particular teacher's monastery and university, they're like, in order to really um, clarify that kind of teaching it's really helpful to like have this whole background of the, of the tradition of Buddhism, how the mind works, how duality comes to be and ceases to be. And uh, so, so that particular teacher, Chokinima Rinpoche, is, is, um, is a beautiful mix of, of those two sides, too. Direct pointing out, but, like, but if you have the time and inclination you can deeply study all of this um, background and um, kind of say, scriptural basis for immediacy. And uh, it's a beautiful mix, yeah. So I take some classes and practice some immediacy. Yes. Um, I wondered about, um, I, know, I read somewhere that in the Yin tradition in China, they somehow consolidated the Madhyamaka and the Yogacara. Hmm. and th- that would they were, and I think that informs Zen. Is that correct? Yeah, you could say that Huayan, which is a pretty geeky school in China. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Chinese, like, if some Chinese, you know, some were really just into like, let's just like. Um, sit and watch a white oxen on open field. And if the oxen starts to stray away, we just pull them back to the center and we just sit there and watch the ox. Some were like that, and some were like, we want to geek out like the Indians. Let's go to the Hua Yan um, teaching hall. (laughs) Those guys were even geekier in a way than the Indian thing. All the systematic lists of steps and stages and and relationships between ultimate and relative and yeah, so uh, they were influenced by the Avatam Saka Sutra, which is which is Huayan, the meaning of the term Huayan, and uh, also Yogacara for sure. And Buddha nature teachings, Tathagatagarbha teachings, and the middle way. And um, Yeah, they're kind of synthesis. Yeah, all these different kind of schools. There aren't really, like, um, there aren't really, in the modern world, there aren't really, like, philosophical schools that have their own monastery of that philosophical school. That was kind of the old days in India. Now I think there's different traditions, like Zen and Pure Land and things like this. But, um... But, uh... 're not exactly um, they 're not taking up one Indian philosophy over another they 're kind of they all kind of do blend together but when studying them it 's nice to like take up one at a time to clarify it well, thanks for your attention and uh, we'll continue the uh, Transmission of light. Sashim. And uh, we continue the rest of our lives through all the changes that are, that will, are happening and will happen and um, have happened. We can remember uh, this one that um, that never has changed and never will change and uh, cannot be Um, created or destroyed our original nature.